welcome to another episode of Conversation with a Chef. I'm Jo Ritty and I love sharing with you the conversations I get to have with talented and passionate chefs. It's the backstory, if you will, to the food they're putting up. I begin today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional custodians of the land where this conversation takes place, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Today I'm chatting to Michael Smith from Hubert Estate. I'd spoken to Michael for a broadsheet article about Hubert Estate in the Yarra Valley, and I knew then that I needed to hear more. Michael has worked at a number of excellent places over the years, and the way he talks about the food he's putting up at quarters at Hubert Estate is wonderful. I haven't had a chat to a chef in a while, and the thing I love about these conversations is that they really are conversations and I'm genuinely fascinated about how the chefs became chefs and what their thoughts are on various subjects related to food and hospitality. Michael absolutely came up with the goods. I loved this conversation and very happily meandered through his own career but also through some ideas around authenticity, well-being in the industry and what to do with critics. I was thinking when I was driving here, so you're executive chef of <laughs> here, so over no. the top, so the, is it Nagambi and Mitchelton No, as well? so Nagambi and Mitchelton, yeah, so yeah, Dan Hawkins runs Nagambi Brewery and Distillery, yep. uh, as well as Mitchelton Estate. Um, I'm out, I've been hired to do Hubert Estate, yep. Open Hubert Estate, which Dan helped um, with the planning and all that process before I started. Um, once I've come on board, he's been able to go back to his two babies. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose we got we got set up, we got open, we opened Quarters Restaurant, we've got Harriet the event space, which is ready to go. Um, bit slower lead time for those ones. We've had a few functions. Yeah. Uh, next month and two, they sort of start picking up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Daniel Cooper, our executive chef here at The Prince, um, was wanting to take uh, a leave of absence to go traveling. I see, I see. Um, and yeah, through the conversation with the, the owners and the boss, um, they've decided that you know, they will keep his position open for him for you know, possibly three to four months. So yeah, they've asked, with us having just opened Hubert and the event space not being crazy yet and the hotel not being built yet, yep. I've got a little bit of freedoms that I can come and help here. Okay. Uh, so it's... It's sort of being pulled, I'm being pulled between the two places when they're required. Mm. Um, and I sort of set myself a day or two that I need to do my things. Yeah, yeah. But otherwise, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but otherwise. Because I would have thought, um, yeah, um, that Hubert estate on its own would be. Hubert's a beast. <laughs> and and it, it will be, like, once it's, it, it's definitely the biggest um, adventure I've taken on in my in my career. Yeah. Um, just the, the sheer volume of what it will be once it's at its full potential. Um, but as for net right now, it's quarters. It's a very busy restaurant. Yeah, um, I just saw how many pizzas have we put through the yeah, oven already? In, well, that's a very it's a it's a rough estimate. Yeah, but I reckon we're just shy of ten thousand in three months. That's that eight, eight, <laughs> seems like a lot of pizza. Yeah, eight or nine hundred a week. Really? Which, yeah, and on the weekends we're doing around almost five hundred people on a Saturday or Sunday. Yeah, so. You know, when we do four or five hundred on a Saturday, Sunday, we're doing close to three hundred pizzas, which is you know crazy. So we'll yeah, just—it's we'll a just, lot of wood to it. <laughs> well, I mean, we've got we've got the top of the line Marana uh, yeah. pizza oven, so it is it is gas um, oh, is thermostat it? controlled. Yeah. So we light a fire in. It's got a little a wood belly in one side. Yeah. Um, because it has the t- the electric turntable 
It's got. Oh. It's, it's it's unbelievable. It is gas, electric, and wood. So we light the fire in the in the fire section. Yep. Uh, the gas. There's a gas element underneath the base, so it keeps the base giving the pizzas a nice crust. Yeah. Um, that's like a little turbo boost. You only use it every now and then. Uh, and then it's got a gas thermostat to make sure it stays hot enough with the fire. Sure. So it's it's pretty amazing. That is amazing. It is, yeah. And it's so I love, I love that colour, that sort of... The dome. It's beautiful. The, it's the dome, but the the, copper, just the coppery... Copper coin looking... Bra- yeah, it's yeah, beautiful. It, it is. And it smells so delicious in there, but you're also cooking other things over yes, wood. Yes, yeah, red gum there. and coal as yeah, well, yeah. yeah. So um, we've got our um, uh, char grill. It's a, a dual char grill, hand wind, uh, so you can adjust the heights on it. Mm. Uh, and one of them's got a little smoke box, hot box oven over the top of it as well. And did you cooked with fire over fire before? Uh, yeah, yes, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, very much so. But I'm just really, I we used to do it quite dodgy back in the late early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, by throwing coal in our grill. To, right. to get the flavour burning through it. Uh, it was a little bit dodgy, but um, it got the effect. Uh, from there, no, I definitely graduated into cooking over coal and wood. Um, after my time at, uh, actually, Innocent Bystander, back out in Hillsville. Yeah. I was an Innocent Bystander only for about a year. Um, after my time there, I went and turned this uh, little venue in Ivanhoe into a smokehouse steakhouse. Oh, what was uh, that it's called? not there anymore. Yeah. Um, but it was the Ivanhoe Smoke Ivanhoe Steakhouse. Okay. Um, it was it was an old uh, RSL style uh, venue. Yeah. And the owners wanted to to flip it on its head and um, you know do top end steaks and top end um, smoked meats and stuff. Yeah. Uh, we had a, an amazing you know three hundred kilo um, smoker out the back so we could you know slow smoke. Um, and we also had the char grill, which was a, what was it called? Um, oh, it slipped my mind. It was imported from Spain. Um, and it was rotisserie style and had a massive char grill, which is hydraulic. It was, that was quite amazing. Um, yeah, I think that cost us about 90K to get, to, to purchase, and another 30K to get it over here. Wow. Uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty amazing. Um, that, that adventure was a bit short-lived. They didn't really look into their clientele base and ended up changing their, their mind on the direction they were uh, going. Right. Uh, so it's not there anymore. Yeah. <laughs> that was a few years ago, though. Yeah. Um, you've, but, been, yeah. you've been in a few places, in a lot of great places. And yeah. I was just like, you've been around a while, I mean, but yeah, you've, been, yeah. <laughs> you've been a chef for a while. You, I don't um, want it to sound like I jump in and out. My, my tenures no. are usually, yeah, three, five years That's pretty normal, though, isn't it, yeah. for chefs? I think, like, as you get a bit older, when you're younger, I wouldn't want an apprentice to stay with me for longer than a year. Because yeah. I think they just need to let their experience yeah. uh, get a good base of experience. Uh, as you get up into a chef to party and junior sous roles, you hope that those people are there for a year or two. Because mm. you invest in training them and, and getting the business to a, a point where um, you know, it can cater to what we're doing. Uh, and then, yeah, you hope that your senior sous and head chefs are, are there for, I would hope, three to five years. Yeah. Um, after that, you know, they can sometimes get a little bit stale if the business doesn't have something else to offer them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I've been, been around though. <laughs> and, and I was thinking too, this is just a thought that um, occurred to me as I was driving over here, so it's not a properly formulated thought at all. <laughs> but um, so I've just written a, um, a bit for Broadsheet, I've just written about Chinese-ish, which is um, a machine calls from Etta and um, Joanna yeah. Hu's book. 
and they and they're writing about their experience of yeah. growing up in Australia and so but they're very they pointedly say it's non-authentic yeah you know and I, and I just I was thinking about this whole authenticity <coughs> thing with because with chefs like you've you've cooked Mexican kind of Indian, Indian fusion Indian. French uh, yeah. if you're doing Italian yeah. so this question of authenticity like what what do you think about Look, I think growing up in Australia is really, that's a loaded question. There's so much, there's so much to unpack there. Um, I think growing up in Australia, uh, when I did, it was, it became very multicultural very quickly uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I was in the northern suburbs, boy, and it was all European um, uh, expats, or, sorry, uh, immigrants and so on. Um, and so I was surrounded by uh, Turkish um, all the way through Italy, Italy, obviously Italy and Greece was a, a big part of, of what came over in those times. But um, you know, Yugoslavia, there was, I had, in my neighborhood we had all, all sorts. And so I loved the food. I think, like, I loved their food so much because it was so interesting compared to what my mom cooked. Yeah. And, and God forbid if she, if she listens to this, but she wasn't the greatest cook. Um, and my parents are from Kiwi, so I, I'm an import as well. Uh, I was born here though, um, but they were there. Um, they're they're Aussies me. now. I grew up in the seventies in New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> My mum wasn't a good cook. Either. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. They're not. She the, she's not the greatest cook. She had her meals. She, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, mum had a couple of meals. There was a kaisi min, which I look back now and I go, "How did we call that kaisi min?" It's yeah. a big bowl. I mean, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, um, but sort of going back to it, that like I think my my approach to food and my love for food is that I love looking into cuisines that I don't know anything about I don't yeah. know much about um, you know some people will get they, when I went for the, the job at Mama Cita, I knew nothing about Mexican except that I love tacos mm. um, and my wife said to me you're an idiot you don't know anything about Mexican how are you gonna I said I can run a kitchen they need someone to run a kitchen yeah I, I'm hoping to go there and learn as much as I can about Mexican food yeah and and I'll put all my time and effort into learning the cuisine and and then I put my Michael Aussie spin on it uh, using you know great Australian produce, um, but with you know Mexican techniques and you know we import as much. I was I was responsible for bringing like eight or nine different chilies in from Mexico mm. that weren't here before mm. because we were looking. At, I went to Mexico actually. I was lucky enough to go to Mexico when I was at Mamacita, and um, I thought I knew chili. I thought I loved chili, but when I went over there, I found out that there was a whole world of chili that I didn't know anything about. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, spicy chilies, yes, and the way you can cook with it in Asian food and get the chili to, you know, develop its flavour differently, so that it's not just hot, was was what I thought I knew how to do. Mm. But then when I went to Mexico and I found chilies that were bitter and chilies that were just smoky and not really spicy at all, and some chilies that when you cooked with them they were really warming, and they made onions taste differently, and I was blown away by it. And so I worked with um, Casa America and another. Um, supplier up in Sydney as well to, to re I worked really hard with them to try and get them to bring other chilies in and they were like oh no one wants them I'm like they will once we get yeah. we start buying them you know we had um, Pusia, um, um uh, obviously the um, Chipotle and stuff like that but we were bringing in these tiny little chilies the what's it called oh forgive me it's a few years now um, uh, Casabel and stuff like that. There were ones that were referred to as like a dummy. They looked like a, a child's dummy, but you didn't want to suck on it. They were really, really spicy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think back to the question, I think I just love getting into the cuisines, really sort of 
paying homage to it and learning about how they got there mm. is the part that I like to uh, you know, spend the first few months on. And then after that, I pull them apart. I like to make them my own a little bit. And that's what I wonder sometimes too, that obviously, I mean, if you're, if you're saying you're cooking a certain Dish. cuisine yeah. um, and, you, and you, you're respectful to it and you've found out about it and, and there's, there, there is a certain way that you need to do that. But I think it's interesting because a lot of those... A lot of dishes were born out of necessity or what was around yeah, them. Yeah. And so nowadays when, um, you know, some chefs are cooking a cuisine but using local ingredients, and I think that's an interesting idea as well. So, so, is, so when we talk about fusion, is that now redundant? Because isn't it all kind of fusion yeah, now? Yeah, I, I don't like the word fusion. <laughs> no, no I think, one does. I think it was because I was a chef in the you know, early 90s when, yeah, when, it was, yeah. when fusion went extreme. Uh, and and got the extreme slap that it needed as well. Like yeah. we, we took it too far, and we we used the word fusion, um, and it became a, it had a negative trend to it or spin to it. Mm. Um, I think yeah, it's definitely a, a fusion of two cultures. Or at, I mean, forgive me, what is the Australian culture like? We're, we're yeah. I don't know. I've born and lived here for forty three years, uh, and I don't know what I would call Australian culture when it comes to food yeah. so we just adapt and, yeah. we, and we and we lo- or I do I love finding out and bringing in what we can do from other countries and other cuisines and um, you know, if you end up making something that you know offends someone from that cuisine then I, I hope that they see it for what it is yeah um, but otherwise I try to pay homage to like I think Mamacita definitely and Tonka were two places where I really, I really tried to do that. Where yeah. at, at Tonka, I had to have a couple of Indian, really good Indian chefs with me there to bring me back to Indian food because we were going a bit crazy. And I, like I was making a, a beef rib vindaloo where we made a really loose vindaloo style stock, braised the beef in it, sorry, braised the beef in it, and then used that stock to make a vindaloo sauce and then I just char grilled the beef and put the sauce back over it. and everyone was like what are we doing but then we served it with a smoked yogurt and it all came together on the plate and then the chefs came to me and they said oh we would normally use one guy Ved he was one of my one of my best best chefs that I've ever worked with um, he with his flavour and his taste profile he came and he's like I can't work out what we serve this with it's not something we would do uh, in India I said, well, what would you do if there was a nice warm, you know, warming beef curry that, that's like this one? They said, oh, maybe a cucumber salad. I said, let's play with it. And I needed some pickles, so I went and we made some pickled red onion. Uh, and then he's like, when you plate something like this in the kitchen, it needs to be kind of fast. Um, he's like, it needs a tempering dressing. And I was like, what's a tempering dressing? And as we heat up the, um, the uh, vegetable oil with a little bit of mustard seed oil in it, you throw mustard seeds in, um, and then you build from whatever you want from there, like curry leaves, turmeric, uh, fenugreek seeds. And we made this little tempering, and we poured it over the, dr- the salad last second and tossed it around. And I was like, it was a step that you didn't need to do. You, like, you could have just made a dressing, but we just really brought it back into what he thought was an Indian cuisine. Mm. And I, like, things, dishes like that really, like, I, I stood there proud that we'd created something that he was proud to serve as an Indian dish yeah. that really wasn't Indian. And that you were open to, that's together. right, that, that, yeah, that you were open to And it's only to when you work with someone and, yes. like that. I did the yeah. same with Mexican, but 
I went to Mexico to, to learn there and um, our general manager and one of our owners there, Matt and Nick, they, those guys are just all about Mexico and all about South America really. Um, and they sort of helped me do that there. I didn't really have that Mexican influence in the kitchen mm. uh, as such. Yeah. And then I'm interested because I feel like <clears throat> when you learn to be a chef um, in Western countries, you learn French technique. Yeah, as your base. As your base. Yeah. And, and then I've always thought that French cooking, you know, is incredible and high as it is, that it's been quite strict. But um, yeah. Is that changing, do you yeah. think? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be the guy that says it, but yeah, it, is. it definitely is. I sort of, I've been what, cause I sort of follow, you know, restaurants in, in France, and there are certainly some that are, yeah, really pushing boundaries and and, yeah. and, and going away, moving away from, from, moving away from the I think strict. I think that we've all held French cuisine and French um, techniques uh, at, you know, as the highest uh, accolade for, for what we can do. Um, but I think we're all finding as we all explore other cuisines in more depth that there's the same relevance to the way you do something in French as the way you might do something in Thai or the way you know you think look at Thai cuisine um, and you know Dave Thompson's book is phenomenal um, the, the first one the the pink I used to call it my bible I always say the bible uh, automatically called Thai food and what the way he dived into that cuisine and what he found out about that cuisine it put it right up there with for me in my in my chef's heart yeah um with the techniques that you can learn from from french cooking and you know the the foundation that that can give a chef having the proper understanding of why and what you do or what you do and why you're doing it yeah um yeah so i i'm still old i'm old enough to know that or to, to be, I was, it was trained into me that you should always have that good foundation of French cuisine to understand how to cook in yeah. general. Um, so that's still in there somewhere, but I think it's slowly dissipating to you know, really giving respect to the cuisines and, and understanding why they do things the way they do them to really understand what you can do from there yeah. afterwards. Yeah. And you had five years in uh, five years in Jacques Hermel's? Just shy. Just, yeah. Just shy of Jacques, yeah. 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 Five years at Jacques. Um, that was, that, was it. Was uh, it? How, where, whereabouts in your career was that? Um, so I was, I was only 24, I think. Wow. I was quite young yeah. Yeah, when I started there. Looking back, I think I was quite young, maybe, maybe 23, actually. And you hit chef there, is that right? Well, I started as sous chef. Yeah. Um, I was over in Perth uh, just before that, and... My now wife, we were over there together working at a place over there. I don't really talk about that much. Um, but uh, we, we'd finished up there and we were heading back to Melbourne. We're, we're both from Melbourne. We're heading back to Melbourne after what, almost three years over there. And I thought to myself, that was my first sort of sous chef role, really. Um, and I thought to myself, I didn't know anything. I just knew what I knew. And I took that moment, I was like, I need to step back a little bit and, and learn some more. Uh, and I thought, after the two years being that sous chef in that restaurant, it was like, I didn't know enough. And I thought, all right, when I come back, I've got to go to some of the greats and, and just do my, you know, grind my teeth in the, in the kitchen and, and learn a bit more before I go back into a sous chef role. Um, and we were literally traveling across an Ullabor and um, we stopped somewhere in... Oh no, it wasn't until we got back here because we picked up the old uh, Tuesday Age which had the espresso lift out. That was the only way chefs found out about anything back then. Really? The, uh, there was no, you know, there was no Instagram. There was no um, you know, foodie 
podcasts and, and <laughs> yeah, all that. Yeah. We literally had to wait till Tuesday before we could find a job as a yeah. chef. Uh, they had the espresso lift out then. Uh, and I found that Ad Sharks was advertising. Um, and so I applied there and I applied at Voudemont. Uh, I rang Voudemont and it was Monday and they were closed. That was back when they only had their little shop in Carlton, their first venture. Uh, they were closed, but Jacques was closed as well. Was it? Yeah, it was a Monday when I called him, sorry. And um, Aunt Jacques answered. He said, oh, come in come in on Tuesday and uh, and we'll give you a trial. I said, okay. And I, oh, sorry, I've said that all around the wrong way. I, I didn't actually read the espresso at that time. I just rang a few places. Okay. And it was on a Monday. And then on the Tuesday, I was on my way in there and my wife uh, went out to get the espresso she, she, so she could look for a job because yeah. she's a chef as well. Um, and she's rang me. She's like, do you know what job you're going for? I'm like, no, no. So I just rang and that was where I wanted to go. She's like, they're advertising today for a sous chef. And I was like, oh, it wasn't really what I wanted. I wanted, well, it wasn't, wasn't what I thought I wanted. Um, but I loved it. I got in there and I, I found out there was more than two types of seaweed in the world. Uh, <laughs> And I realised how much I could learn there. Yeah. Um, you know, Jacques, while be it very, very, very French yes. uh, himself, his cuisine isn't. He, it's it's this um, melting pot of of Australian cultured driven, and he loves Japanese and Southeast Asian influence. Nice. But it's all done with a French technique, which sounds like you want to shoot yourself in the head. <laughs> but but it, it, it is it is his mind and his background that gives him his drive to try and lift Australian cuisine to yeah. where he well, where he has. He, yes. he was one of the first to do degustation food here yeah. and that style of dining, uh, fine dining, degustation, you know, back in the early nineties, like I don't know how he was able to, you know, get it through to the keeper, but he did. Um, but yes, and that's, it was that Southeast Asian thing that I think I was most excited about when I started there, you know, using mirin and sake and um, you know, three different types of soy sauce. And, mm. and then the other side of the coin was he wasn't shy to, to throw in white balsamic when he was making a dressing that had soy in it. Like, because of his, his he just rode and drove by his palate. Mm. Um, yeah, so I went, I was applying for a job there, but I ended up getting the sous chef role there, which... Uh, was some of the best and worst times of my career. It was very, very, very stressful. Yeah. Um, the first couple of years, I think the culture in the kitchen was was one that I wasn't used to. It was quite, um, I hadn't been in a fine dining restaurant. I hadn't been in a restaurant at that level before. I'd worked in a hatted restaurant, but not three hats. Uh, and I think I was naive to what that was. Um, and, well, I just didn't, I didn't know it. Yeah. Uh, and it, yeah, I was, I was out of my depth for a little while and uh, I was, you know, it was, it was, I was anxiety ridden and, um, yeah. you know, but, but also using that to fuel, I think I have this, um, this healthy level of anxiety for being a chef. Like if you don't have that, you're not going to keep challenging yourself or you're not going to keep questioning yourself. Um, but yeah, it got a little bit shaky there for a little while with, um, you know, Jacques standards were very high. Yeah. Um, I learned there that, you know, a critic that was coming in there wasn't looking to come and have an amazing time. They were coming to look for fault. Oh, I really? felt yeah. I felt yeah. back then mm. it was it was you know, certain critics would come through just to try and be the person that would write something where they found a fault. Yeah. And Jacques lived his life at that stress level of every single diner yeah. could cause him to lose a hat. He he didn't he didn't 
stand there with the three hats on his chest like it was a badge, but he definitely wanted to keep them as a, you know, to keep his stature in, in what he was trying to achieve in, in his cuisine. I've never heard of anyone speak of their cuisine. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a um, Italian cuisine. It wasn't a Greek cuisine. It was Jacques' cuisine. Right. Yeah. And, and what he was like doing, it was, it was, it was something so strange. Um, but it was very yeah. instrumental for me, and, and it was a, it was a crazy building block that um, I definitely would, I definitely would do again. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a difficult time as well. Oh, it sounds Hard. like it. Yeah. Grueling. And, and many chefs wouldn't make it through that. Uh, yeah, we had people come and go pretty quickly yeah. through there, um, which is if sad. if you do make it through, then you can look back and be thankful you for that time. You should be better for but it, yeah. <laughs> but, um, hope, yeah, hope. yeah. It's difficult. Like, but, and, and I'm not saying that the, the place was... Um, there was no one that was mean there. It was just a strict uh, level that was required. Yes. Every day, every moment. Imagine trying to be at your best every time you walk in the kitchen yeah. every time you pick up the knife every time you, you which is still something. the case now you want yeah, to course. be at your best but I know when I came and I spoke to, I've spoken to both Dan's here yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, and they talked about how important well-being was for the group and I really yeah. liked yes. hearing that and yeah. so that there were smoothies at the end of the night rather than knock-off drinks I'm yeah. sometimes still knock-off drinks but yeah, um, yeah. but you know just but just you're being really open with talking about well-being and looking after each other yeah. and, and making sure people aren't so and anxiety a culture driven change that, yeah. yeah, I think so and I hope so yeah and I, I have loved that about this group um, as I said I only started with these guys with um, with Hubert so uh, six months almost to the day at the moment mm. um, and I think that their their approach to their their business while at the heart of it their hospitality and, and, and for a customer, they're also hospitality for their staff. Yeah, which uh, and, I think... And showing, them, showing each other that respect. And when I say respect, I don't mean, oh, you respect them by saying hello every morning. I mean respect by looking out for them um, yeah. and making sure that they have what they need so they can do their job for the best, mm. but also to make sure they're for their well-being. Mm. Well, it's about the sustainability of, of the person as much as sustainability of, you know, products and the planet and... Yeah, really, it's all yeah. it's important, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I think it's interesting you're talking about you know the critics coming in, and I and I'd like I'd like to think there's a okay. On one hand, there's a slight shift because I think, for example, writing for broadsheet, I don't give ratings. Yeah, I, I feel like most broadsheet articles we're talking about the place kind of showing rather yeah. than. Um, Rather than telling and not making a judgment, it's kind of like this is our this, this is the experience is we had. Yeah. This is what we've seen, and I think from my non-journalist, um, you know, like I didn't train to be a food writer, but yeah. I love eating out and I've honed my writing made, skills. Yeah, made, made um, I, I think that that's um, really important, and I, um, I mean, obviously there's a place, and some of the top food critics are incredible, and their writing is incredible. I like I don't have to give a rating. I like yeah. I have to be critical. To because, be that. Because everyone's experience is different. But I think now that everyone has access to the internet, everyone's a critic. And yeah. people very quickly jump on and talk about a bad experience. Or yeah. What could, you yeah. know, and, and maybe there's room <coughs> for that. But I think, I mean, how much store do, <clears throat> do chefs place on the average punter that comes in and then jumps on the internet? Is yeah. That, do you worry about those things? Or? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I mean, as a business, I think probably once I hit Mamacita, prior to Mamacita, at Jacques, 
we weren't looking at the at the reviews and stuff like that. We when I say reviews, I mean like of the the general public. We're obviously watching and trying to do our best uh, to get the great reviews from all the riders. But it wasn't like today where you have the Yelp or what was Zomato and um, uh, what's it called the the travel one TripAdvisor TripAdvisor and stuff like that. Where you have everyone doing reviews every day. Yeah, and it it does affect your click flow on the internet and it affects where people do research these days where they want to go and eat you don't just drive and and land somewhere mm. so all those all those you know four stars and four and a half stars it it does mean a lot to a business at the end of the day mm. so you have to be able to look at what's going on there yeah and i think from even back from mama Cita, we always at our weekly meeting there was the discussion around wages, there was the discussion around food costs and cost of goods in the bar, and then there was a big discussion around staff, mm. and then it was always a discussion around what was happening in our, in our online presence. Mm. And, and there was some things, and I hope the, the audience out there understand this, there were some things we drew a line through, like yeah. this is our business, yeah. and if they didn't quite get that, they didn't quite understand that, that's really with them yeah uh, and then there are other things that were like wow we really didn't want that experience for our customers and we reach back out to those people and we give them an explanation and an apology and and invite them back in and hope mm. that we we can Amazing. fix those problems yeah. that was uh, that was a big drive at Mama Cena, um and and I, I love that culture behind it as well uh, and it's the same with these guys here uh, with the Ryan hospitality guys out at Hubert Estate we are doing something a bit different out there our level of food I think is is high in quality uh, but it's also a fast-paced environment so it's not finicky and it's not fully worked we are in a like super duper brand new shiny vessel yeah which is a restaurant and so people come in there and they've got an idea of what they're going to experience but our service is very casual in that room it's mm. it's a big turnover it's a 220 seater plus outdoor seating we could sit almost 300 people at a time yeah so therefore the service isn't at a high level. It's, but it's was what it so is. so nice when I was yeah. out there. And I thought there was a lot of floor staff. And there is, is, because it's a busy place. Yeah, which is great. We, we want to be able to provide the service that is required, yeah. but it's not table service. You'll see that there's a communal yep. area where you can get sparkling and tap water on, um, you know, on tap. Uh, sorry, tap water. Sparkling and still, still <laughs> on tap. Yeah. Um, where you can help yourselves. That's also where you get your own cutlery and your serviettes and your plate, your share plates. Yeah. Um, you can order on QR code, which is a positive for some people, but a negative for others. Yeah. And and the reason I'm bringing it up is when we go to those reviews and someone didn't like the 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 problems that they encounter with technology and QR codes. We draw a line through that one because that is our our the systems that we're putting in place, and that's yeah. what we're trying to trying to do out there. And it all comes down to the cost of business these days. Yeah. Food food prices going through the roof. Finally, staff are being paid correctly, but that comes at a cost to the business. Mm. So our our model is a little less uh, waiters everywhere that you look. It's it's a lot more systems in place to make sure everything still works and the customer still gets what they want. Yeah, but achieving it with a slightly lower wage cost to try and make the business viable. If I, if I gave you $4 million or $3 million and you could invest it in um, you know, uh, uh, an investment portfolio with someone, you might make 10, 12% annually, given 100% you'll make that guaranteed. If you gave it to me and I opened a restaurant, I could promise you 5%, <laughs> it might be eight, 
you yeah. probably wouldn't see 10, not for five to 10 years. No. Like, uh, yeah. It's not a business that you get into to make money. No. It's a business when uh, you get into when hospitality is at your heart. And, and clearly it is with you, because you, you still, when I talk to you about quarters and about the food and so on, um, you were so enthusiastic, which is so great. Mm. <laughs> As a, you know, yeah. Doing it a while. What made you get into being a chef in the first place? Because sometimes it's interesting, because people talk about growing <laughs> yeah. up with food, and, yeah. and then other people talk about, you know, their mum wasn't a good cook. So, so what? <laughs> I know, then, I've been quoted as saying it before. I don't know how much truth there is to it. I, I feel sometimes I became a chef because my mum wasn't a great cook. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think uh, it, it was a little bit by accident. Um, I don't mean to say I was a lazy kid, but I wasn't driven when I was 15. Um, my, I, I was in year nine uh, doing the um, work placement that you used to do back then for two weeks. I'm not sure if they still do it now. Doing year 10 now, but yeah. We used to get paid $5 a day. Wow. As, as the minimum, but it was, an, it was only if you wanted to pay them. You didn't have to. Okay. It, it was, a, it was a, a gesture if you liked. So I got $5 a day to, to clean a kitchen top to bottom. But I hadn't, um, I hadn't done anything about it and my dad... Uh, who from time to time, wasn't a drinker, but from time to time bet on the horses uh, and was in at the local pub that had a TAV and he put, was putting a bet on the horse and the publican, who was a lovely guy, started chatting to him. He's like, oh, what's going on? He's like, Summit, my dad's a bit of a talker. I think that's where I get it from as well. Um, and he starts talking to him about me being a lazy bugger who hadn't organised his um, work experience. And from there I ended up in the kitchen there uh, for doing my two weeks work experience. Uh, so I cleaned the kitchen from top to bottom and scrubbed all the fridges and door seals and washed a million dishes and peeled all the carrots and potatoes. It was just a pub, a local pub out in Whittlesey, uh, which unfortunately is not there anymore. Um, and yeah, at the end of it, I think I was on the second last day and the kitchen were in the shit and I walked into the kitchen bringing some dishes in and I, I lifted up the fryers because the fryers were cooked. And the chef looked at me, he's like, what'd you do? I'm like, oh, they looked like they were ready. And I took them out. Yeah, he goes, stand there and put another basket in. And that was it. I was stuck in the kitchen from, <laughs> from, that, from that moment of, of lifting the basket up. And I think um, the chef there was a, a Sri Lankan guy, one of the most humble, nicest chefs I'd ever worked with. And I think from that was where I started how I feel a kitchen should run with, you know, humility and... and, and you know, caring for your team and then also teaching. He he was a great teacher to me. Hope you don't listen I hope you're not listening, VJ, but he wasn't the greatest chef I've ever worked for, by no means. Yeah. He was a great chef, uh, but he had a heart of gold. Yeah. And I think that and then from there he actually got me um, my next job, which was in a Hatted restaurant, um, with a chef just like him. So I had five or six years I did my whole apprenticeship at the pub, yeah. not knowing any better. Um, so, sorry from year nine, I worked there part-time while I was at high school till I finished VCE. Yeah. My mum was like, even though I said to mum, I want to be a chef, I love food, I love cooking, I did all the cooking classes at school. Yeah, wow. Mum still said, you, you have to finish VCE and have something to fall back on yeah. if this isn't your thing. Yeah. So I finished VCE uh, and then started my apprenticeship. Um, and yeah, I, I think, as I said, the, the six years, seven years working with these really genuinely nice chefs that were really uh, all about training they knew they had to train me to do the job otherwise they were gonna have to keep doing it yeah and I think at the end of the day all chefs understand that but you know the way that they go about things aren't always the same way 
if you get people on your side and you work, I think like managing a kitchen is, isn't about managing a kitchen, it's about managing your people. And everyone's different. And as soon as you understand that, you start building relationships with people and you find how much more, and I don't mean to sound like in a, um, in a nasty way, but how much more you can get out of people. You open them up to what they, what they love and what they get excited by, and and your staff improve and, and mm. you know, perform better. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and I've worked with people that aren't that nice throughout the years, and I've seen the response that they get from their staff, and it's it's a cold shoulder, and they walk out at the end of the day not caring about it. Where I find chefs that I've worked with, so many of them, even to today, will still ring me and say, "Chef, where are you at? Oh, I might come and work with you again soon." Like, you get that. I'm not chasing them to, to fill my kitchens, but the fact that they're still keeping in contact to want to you know, work with me again and, and see what we can do, like, and it's what we can do. Yeah, that to me do. is hospitality, isn't it? You want yeah. it to permeate through, I want it to permeate through every, yeah, everything, yeah. And, and I like to think, you know, yeah, when you're cooking, that you're cooking in, from a place of happiness and, yeah. and working together, yeah. There's... To your point before about the the staff and the, the the Dan and Dan were both saying it as well. There are there could be a thousand points that a customer could see how the business behaves and get an opinion from it. And as long as and that's the hard part for a business to make sure that all those points of contact are all have the same language and the same you know that, that people are getting the same feeling from it. And it's that warmth of hospitality that we try to do. So you've got to kind of have a no dickhead policy mm. in your business when you start wanting to work with your on your culture, mm. not just your food. Because yeah. having great food from a great chef doesn't always come with a great culture, which can be you know, sad at times. Yeah. Some, some of the best chefs out in the world, out there in the world, need a really solid head chef or, or you know senior sous chef that that is all about culture and and team and. Mm. It'll hold them together, and I've I've seen that in a couple of places where you know a chef might be an absolute ass, but he's got you know a fantastic second who brings his team together yeah, for him, right. and they achieve. Yeah, interesting. It is interesting. <laughs> no so, names. <laughs> <laughs> and so, with all that in mind, what would you what would your advice be to a young person who was thinking of becoming a chef now? Oh. <laughs> so many times I've said don't do it <laughs> uh, and I think if you get discouraged and you still want to do it then you're the one for it um, I wouldn't discourage anyone anyone that had a love for food I would tell them to start slower um, kind of like what not, not saying you should follow in my footsteps but kind of like where I did where it wasn't a such a fast-paced crucial environment um, somewhere where you can get in and understand the pressures of service because there's some pressure points in the business. There's obviously, uh, you know, once you get up to the, the finer end, when you're a head chef and sous chef, you're responsible for the financial outcomes. Um, but the pressure points for a younger chef is being able to handle stress, being able to handle long hours standing up. Um, hopefully they're getting paid for those long hours these days, but long hours standing up and, and in that pressure environment where you may be working by yourself and, and if you can't get out of your own head as well, like. Those, it's, it would be really good to find that out earlier rather than later. Um, so yeah, like start slower and, and and really make that decision after the first couple of years because I, I think that there's some disgruntled chefs out there and they're probably disgruntled because they don't like what they do. And you know, you've ended up there because you've invested the time of your life where you think you that's the only time that you have to learn a trade and do something. 
so many people have started being a chef um, you know, later on in their life. These days I've got a couple of close friends that you know, changed careers. One of them was a car salesman, high-end car salesman, not a dodgy car salesman <laughs> that you think of when you, when you hear car salesman. Uh, and he was in three figures before I was uh, as, a, as a, a car salesman when I was the head chef at, at Jacques. Mm. And don't, don't get me wrong, I was never earning three figures at Jacques. <laughs> um, but he gave that all up for a chef apprenticeship. Uh, he travelled the world with it. He's, uh, he was the head chef of a couple of great restaurants here in Melbourne, um, and, and I think that it was only he only made it through because of his love yes. for for the food and the, and his passion for for what he was doing. Um, so for young people starting out, like you've got to get inside your head and make sure that it's really something that you want to do. And if you ask yourself all the questions and it's still a yes, then get in, maybe start a bit softer. Don't try and get into the voodoo bonds. Now, I'm not saying you can't do that. Um, yeah, there's, there's young kids that I know that have only worked in those high, high volume, uh, high, volume high uh, stress level places that have come out fine. Yeah. But then, like you said before, they are, they're the make or break places sometimes and people won't last in there. Give yourself a chance. Get a mentor. And get a mentor. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, that was great. No worries. <laughs> Easy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Conversation with a Chef with Michael Smith from Hubert Estate. If you want to experience all the greatness for yourself, which of course you do, you can check out at Quarters Hubert Estate, all one word, or at Michael Smith Chef, also all one word, on Instagram. As for me, I'm also on Instagram at Conversation with a Chef. And if you want to read the chat, you can head to www.conversationwithachef.com. I would love it if you told a friend about my chats. And of course, you can follow me on Apple and Spotify podcasts. Once again, thanks for listening and have a great day.